From Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made Over America, the podcast that's part history and culture and part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing. I am not from the Midwest, so in every episode I do the research and then I sit down with someone who is from here, and together we explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. An American TV watcher sees up to nine drug commercials in a day. And we live in an age of rapid fire and free-flowing information. You can tune in or live stream from the tiny computers in our pockets, and everyone is suddenly an expert on the latest popular science buzz thanks to their favorite online magazine or podcast. So how did we get here? This generation of a more curious public and popularized science streaming online for your viewing and listening pleasure? To find out, we are going back to Omaha, Nebraska, circa 1898. And joining me on this journey back to the turn of the century western frontier is Dr. Amanda Jepson. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Emily. <laughs> Dr. Jepson is a pediatric cardiology fellow at the University of Nebraska and Children's Hospital Medical Center and was raised in Wayland? Wayland, Iowa. Yep. Wayland, Iowa. And it's important for our story that Amanda is a pediatric physician, but we'll get to that later. Right now, we're going to the Omaha World's Fair in 1898, officially called the Trans-Mississippi and International Exposition. So this fair was one of many of its kind during this period, and it was spread out over 184 acres. Just a massive display of culture and technological progress of the day. Almost every building was lined with electrical lights, which would have been an enormous feat during this time. There was a man-made lagoon. There was a 200-foot seesaw. At, well, I sat down with a tour guide at our local Durham History Museum, Jean Johnson, and I'll let her paint the scene for you. Women, of course, had dresses that were from their necks to their toes and a hat and gentlemen probably had wool suits. The midway of course would have had hot dog sausage making, uh, cotton candy, those smells, the cooking, the frying, and there would have been a lot of chatter and you know wonderment. So we have the rides and the fried donuts and there's a Wild West show and not too far off from the Wild West show. This was the first time, and this is what this whole thing is about here, right? This is the first time that U.S. World's Fair exhibited the Altman Infant Incubators. Incubators? Baby incubators, baby. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So now you know why I've asked you here, given your specialty. Yes. Can you, for people who don't know, um, can you explain to us just what, what is an incubator? infant incubator and the significance of it. Why are they so important? So for babies who are born premature, a lot of times they can't regulate their own body temperature. And so they're put in these incubators and it controls the temperature and just the environment around the babies. 
um, to help them to survive and to help protect them from stressors in the environment around them. You may not have statistics off the top of your head, but like, what would, what is the success rate, or how many infants would die if you did not have? Oh my gosh, it pains me to even think about how many mm-hmm. babies it would be. I mean, it's it's amazing, it, incredible technology that we have now. But here's the thing: this was not in the technology wing. This was not in the science building. This exhibit was part of that midway that Jean is talking about. So right, we have the camels walking around. We have hay being thrown to feed animals. We have cotton candy and donuts and the German beer garden, the Chinese tea house. <laughs> These are all the things that oh were also gosh. seen as culturally acceptable at that time. And then you have the infant incubators. But it does have its own building. Okay kind of like a Hollywood set, but not just the fronts. Everything was made wood frame and then three layers of something called staff, which was like cement and plaster of Paris and horsehair. And then it was painted white. And on the outside of the building, there hung a large banner reading, all the world loves a baby. The words (laughs) that were hung on this banner. And then inside, inside there were six incubators with six live babies. Live babies. Born in Nebraska? So it's hard to say. It's hard to say because at this point, as we said, this is the first time that this show has gone on the road. Later it does pick up, and he ends up showing this all across the country at different world's fairs. Chicago, New York City. He ends up in Atlantic City for a long time in Coney Island. But this is the first one. Wow. There's not a lot of records. So it's here amidst the new electrical lights and behind the horsehair walls <laughs> that a man introduces himself as Dr. Martin Cooney, and he introduces the United States to the French-invented, German-made Altman Infant Incubators. So it's the French and the Germans coming together in Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So here is an article. This is from the Omaha World Herald, September 18th. 1898. And I don't know how good your eyes are, but you can, if you can read any of this, you can read this to us. This is an article detailing the exhibit. So baby incubators, the first exposition where babies have been raised in an incubator like a chicken. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) Essentially it's a giant glass box. It has some metal sides, but it is all glass. It's very clearly made to be viewed. They were in a little hammock that was tilted ever so slightly forward so you could see their little faces and of course always wrapped in blankets and they were very careful to keep them clean for multiple reasons but they also it was very much a show. The principle of the incubator has been known for years and various crude methods have been used to save the lives of prematurely born infants. So this was the main U.S. premiere of the incubators, but they did come from Europe. So here um, we can, we'll talk a little bit more about that. This is Dawn Raffle. She wrote a book in 2018, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saves the Lives of Thousands of American Babies, about Dr. Cooney and the incubator shows. So these incubator sideshows actually started in France, as far as we can tell, um, Mr. Coney and his financial backer, Samuel Schenken, first showed these incubators in London in 1897, and they had a license. And then, of course, the next show right after London was here in Omaha, Nebraska. 
Welcome, babies. <laughs> Welcome, the babies. Now, unfortunately, the show here in Omaha was not a great money-making success. And, you know, he would have had these huge travel expenses. He was hopping all around the world at this point, Martin Cooney was. So by the end of the Omaha show, in an attempt to recoup some of his losses, presumably, he begins to endorse a particular beer company here. And, well, just take a look at, at this is another newspaper clipping here. Okay. <laughs> Krug Cabinet Lager Beer at the Trans-Mississippi and International Exposition has been awarded the gold medal. Special to young mothers, really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's mentioned there, right? Can yeah. you find his name? Uh, Dr. Martin Cooney, the physician in charge of the infant incubators at the exposition, who has had a wide experience, says, after using several other beers, we take pleasure in stating we have crew cabinet bottle beer consistently and for milk-producing <laughs> qualities. Oh, wait. 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 <laughs> oh, my gosh. We can cheerfully recommend it to all nursing mothers. Wow. Yeah, they're cheerful because they're drunk. And so are their babies. That's so crazy. I mean, I guess it's before they knew, but so we do not recommend <laughs> drinking beer and um, being pregnant or drinking beer and breastfeeding. Says our pediatric in-house physician. Right. So, right. Now, but the thing is, he may not been entirely off base here. So I spoke to someone you know who you introduced me to. This is the head of neonatology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center weighing in on the beer for baby mamas. Oh, great. <laughs> I will say that the malt in beer, as well as non-alcoholic beer and malted milkshakes, has been shown to help moms with increasing milk production in some studies. So he maybe wasn't too far off in recommending a malt. So this is Dr. Anderson Berry, as you know. But alcohol, both during pregnancy and while mom is breastfeeding, is detrimental to infants' uh, outcomes. So I can't recommend a beer. Just stick with the milkshakes. They're my preference, I will admit. <laughs> that is great. Uh -huh. That's Cherry chocolate, if you're wondering. <laughs> Except you need to get some extra points with her. There you yeah. Go. So as, as I continue to talk with Dr. Anderson Berry, she was able to give me a better picture of what the birthing process and care of a premature infant would have been like during this time. To give us some context for the social environment that Cooney would have been bringing these machines, these incubator machines into. So I have actually even met people uh, born here in Nebraska who say, oh, well, I was born very small and very premature. And so my grandmother put me on the door of the oven. And these were coal or wood-fired cooking ovens. And they would stoke the fire just warm enough to keep the baby warm and hopefully keep the baby alive. And that was a fairly traditional treatment for people who are adults today. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I, I know, like, you have to, you know, do what you have. Um, you have to do what you have the means to do at that time. And without the incubators, yeah, it makes sense. But it's crazy to think about. Like the microwaves that have, like, the popcorn setting, baked potato setting, <laughs> baby setting. <laughs> so here is our author again, Don Raffle. And she's also talking about the cultural stigma that existed at, at the time. You know, when the medical term for preemies was weaklings, just a lot of feeling that these children were not worth saving. 
And that was part of Clooney's propaganda, was not just that they can be saved, but that they should be saved. And there just wasn't a lot of attention being paid in hospitals. You had so many hungry mouths to feed already. The thinking was just like, well, the mother will have another baby. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, somebody has to foot the bill for any medical technology, even though, you know, it's sad to think about a child's life versus the dollars it takes to save them. But and just that culturally, like that didn't exist. We didn't think this is something that's important. Well, something that, you know, we are doing now at Children's Hospital Medical Center is babies that have trisomy 18 and trisomy 13. And you got to slow that. You got to break it down. For So <laughs> a lot of people know what Down syndrome is or trisomy 21. Mm. Um, it's when babies are born with an extra chromosome or an extra 21st chromosome. There's other conditions that have extra chromosomes like trisomy 13. And previously, the medical community has not been offering cardiac surgery to these babies with heart conditions. It's a big hot topic in the press right now about should we do this? Should we not do it? What is their life going to be like? And so we still face these kinds of issues today. Mm. Something has to shift, though, that the culture, the whole society has to begin to believe this is this is worthwhile. This is valued. And so there was another cultural shift going on, though, at the same time. And this really starts to get into the meat of this story for this podcast. And that's that it seems that Dr. Cooney's shows had such an emphasis on education that it would not be unfair to propose that Dr. Cooney kind of foreshadowed our current era of popular science mags and instructional YouTube channels. That's the premise, at least, for this show, because he really went directly to families with this. He decided, screw you, hospitals, you're not listening anyway, we're going to go straight to the people. So here's Don Raffle again, talking about that. He really could talk to people in a way that they could understand he had infinite tolerance for people would ask the silliest questions. He loved meeting everybody who was coming through the door. He wanted to talk to them. He wanted to answer their questions. You know, no question was too stupid. And so, uh, yeah, he made it accessible. I mean, that's very much what we could do on the Internet now. You know, nobody, you can Google. Dr. You, Google. Dr. Google. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, you can you can Google how do I set the place setting, and Grandma's not going to know that you had to Google it five minutes before she came over. Exactly. You know, no question is too dumb when nobody knows that you're doing it. <laughs> but anybody can answer the question. I mean, like, anybody can write a response on totally. the Internet. It's hard to know how valid, you know, the data is on the Internet to come to what the real truth is when you're searching for an answer. Which is why we trust. I mean, you got those letters, girl. You got those letters <laughs> after your name. <laughs> so that means something in our society, especially when so many people are out there with opinions and presenting themselves as authority. I mean, there's good reason we put stock in those letters. Right. Yes. Because physicians should be trained on all the technology and advancements in science. Probably more than half of being a doctor is talking to families and explaining mm. things in a way that they understand and communicating. And of course, families aren't going to know about these incubators if they've never seen one before. And so he always maintained, Dr. Cooney said he is making propaganda for preemies, was his kind of tagline. And he's definitely making a profit. Right. It's a lot like today. You have, you know, physicians who represent different devices for different companies. And yes, they use those devices, but then do they also get a kickback on it? Maybe. Right. There are obvious connections here between this and direct consumer marketing. 
So it's like, yeah, it's great. He kind of foreshadowed this era of YouTube instructional videos, which is great. We all know how to like wrap a wound in the wilderness, but also <laughs> the little blue pill, it's everywhere. It doesn't matter if you want to watch the commercial or not, it's going to be there. Right. Okay. We use that with babies all the time. You use that on babies? Yeah. Why? For uh, pulmonary hypertension, it like dilates the arteries going to the lungs. And so if they're too tight, then blood can't get to your lungs. So we use them to dilate it so that way blood can get to the lungs. It's like a very common medicine that I use every day. <laughs> or not myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, the more you know. The so, more you know. But yeah, I mean, so, so it, I mean, there's, it's the both and. Uh, here's, um, here's Don Raffle again speaking on that, his stance on the midway. There were some records of him saying he was unhappy with the fact that he was relegated to the Midway and not in the Hall of Science. And then there were other records he was specifically requesting to be on the Midway. So that's also not entirely clear. But I think he really wanted to be able to go where there was going to be a lot of foot traffic. I mean, Martin Coney was at Coney Island and at Atlantic City, and those were such hugely popular destinations. Oh, he was only on the carnival. He was never in the science building. No, they wouldn't let him in. They might not have thought it was real science. Word. (laughs) (laughs) And for some of these fairs, you had to pay a fee to rent your space in the Hall of Science, and that was usually not the case. They usually just take a cut on the midway. So that could have had something to do with it, especially when he was first starting out. He didn't have much capital, so he would have just gone to where he could get a space, pay him later. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. If you have an idea in science or in medicine, you have to be able to sell that idea. Anderson Berry again. And right now we try to sell it to the NIH or foundations. If you're not good at selling your ideas, no matter how good the ideas are, they aren't going to get funding and they aren't going to move Yeah, I don't know if my personality is well-suited for a carnival, but you certainly do have to be persuasive about what the needs of your patients are, both in a hospital setting and in a grant writing setting. Advocacy is critical for a vulnerable population. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think that Dr. Cooney probably could have used uh, the 1800s version of Shark Tank. I think that he would have had to have shown, you know, real outcomes. So eventually he does. And eventually he starts quoting this 80%. He says 80% success rate is what he starts quoting near the end. Of course, he didn't have that when he first came to Omaha. And the other thing is, once hospitals did pick this up much later down the line, they only had a few incubators in the hospitals because they were so expensive. And the hospitals, because they're more worried about their results, wouldn't take the smallest babies. Oh. So he was ending up when he was on in Atlantic City and when he was on Coney Island, he was taking the smallest babies because the hospitals wouldn't take them. So even so, he was still quoting this 80% success rate. I think that somebody on Shark Tank would have picked up an 80% <laughs> success rate, especially if the return is, you know, an entire life. So they didn't have Shark Tank, no. unfortunately, uh, in the late 1800s. But this is a time when the population in general, is becoming more educated, and they're kind of buying into the idea of science a little bit more. There were some recent inventions and discoveries that kind of get the public more online with this. So, of course, I had to sit down with some anthropologists. I talked with two anthropologists from Creighton University's Medical Anthropology Department. This is Alexander Rudelow and Laura Heinemann, and here's what they had to say about that shift that was happening just arrived at this time when science was becoming more 
popular and widely accepted and people trusted medical technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was the time also, I think, when public hygiene mm-hmm. was really mm-hmm. the foreground. Right. Anything uh, related to hygiene was somehow on the mind of people. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of the, the earlier days of the public health movement. Yeah, so none of this is happening in a vacuum. There was the sanitary reform movement, and that started in the 1840s in the U.S., but it really picks up steam in the late 1800s. And then in 1872, the American Public Health Association was founded. Germ theory and bacteriology take hold in the United States in the later 1800s. And all of this is changing the public's understanding of health and making it just part of your everyday conversation. It's becoming more informal. That's interesting. Also, right before the incubators were introduced in the United States, it was a prolific time for medical inventions. We have the stethoscope invented in 1816. In the 1850s, the ophthalmoscope, which is for... Your eyes. Thanks, Amanda. And the first devices that we would call hearing aids are invented in 1895, which is the same year as the X-ray machine. Impressive. So you start to get the sense that the populace were beginning to conceptualize the human body into these component parts. And Professor Heinemann explains it this way. So this notion that a machine could replace a uterus, <laughs> you know, sort of this disembodied piece of technology in, in some way being somehow, you know, swappable for, you know, a, a human, a, a woman's woman's body. Yeah, as a witness to, you know, heart transplants and things, parts can be exchangeable. And this is, this really marks a time when we began to get a window into the human body. I mean, the x-ray machine, I feel like that's got to be huge. At this point in time, it was the body was seen as machine like composed of interchangeable parts this overall concept of the human body is changing and the fascination uh, to understand is growing we also have amanda mm. the digesting duck i have no idea what this might even be <laughs> the digesting duck created by jacques de valkinson he was french and it was a rather quirky masterpiece Basically, a very elaborate mechanical puppet. This is way before Jim Henson, but he would have been very proud. And the promise was that the duck could ingest small grains of corn and wheat and then poop them out later. Like <laughs> here, I will real let, poop. I will let our anthropologists explain. Yeah, a mechanical duck that could digest. It was, so it was later discovered that the mechanical duck was not actually pooping, but there was a tiny compartment where you could store a, a pellet and then produce it to the crowd when the time was right. <gasps> so it was magic. Totally magic. Trickery magic. Yes. Street magic. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, all of these things were going on at the time. That's a new way of understanding life processes and the makeup of the body. Also, in the 1840s, we have some of the first discoveries of dinosaur bones Ah. are made, and the public was absolutely fascinated with them. So, again, culturally, there's just this shift that is happening. We have the digesting duck, right? (laughs) Sometimes called the defecating duck. We have dinosaur bones. We have x-ray machines. We have stethoscopes. We have ophthalmoscopes. All of these things are happening at the same time. And people, the public, is beginning to become more curious about science and biology specifically. So 
I asked Don Raffel about this idea, our theory that perhaps Martin Cooney was a precursor for our modern age of science podcasts and blogs, and here's what she had to say. Well, I think it makes sense. And, you know, these World Fairs and exhibitions were sort of places where a curious public went to find out about new inventions and new advances in medicine and technology. And at the same time, they were places where people went to be entertained. And some of the entertainment was horrifying. Yet at the same time, there was a real hunger to learn more about uh, medicine and about science. I think in a lot of ways, these world fairs, and then particularly the way that Martin Cooney begins to show at the world's fairs, because he included lectures and, and, and things of that nature in his exhibition, it's like it's the 1800s equivalent of Googling. This is how people got information, was by going to expositions like these. Yeah, it's like those, you know, you're watching your favorite TV show on, you know, an online streaming, and then an ad pops up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it is for something medical, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this, the question then is, was he educating and generating propaganda for preemies, or was he just entertaining to turn a profit, which is also the question that w- we ask ourselves a lot these days when you get an ad that pops up or whatever channel you're streaming from, like how much of this is because it's just sharing information, or is it because you were paid for this? He did endlessly say what he was doing was making propaganda for preemies. In other words, he wanted to educate the public directly, and he was able to talk to them in terms that ordinary people could understand. So, of course, our anthropologist wanted to weigh in on this. Can it be both? Is this turning a profit, or is it education? Exploiting the desperation of mothers Mm -hmm. with premature Mm -hmm. babies Mm -hmm. for marketing and profiting purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which also raises questions of where were these babies coming from? That brings me back to my first question is where were these babies coming from? Where, who were the babies? Yes. So once Cooney's show became more established, he gets a lot better at record keeping. All the infants actually got graduation certificates once they left the incubators. But here in Omaha, he really wasn't doing any of that. So there are almost no records of the infants from the fair here in Omaha. No records. Well, almost no records. So, right. So you know that I had to try to find a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Emily, on the case. So, So with no official records from the fair, I started looking through birth records from those years, which is a pretty fruitless effort when most of the babies were still born at home in the late 1800s. Then I started looking through newspaper archives, and I found something. What did you find? So we've taken to calling her baby Joe, but her name, as it's listed in the paper, is Josephine, Josephine Nauber. Here's the article. It was hard to find. This is the first one, and this actually was not from here. This is the Star Tribune, Minneapolis. So this, this story was published all the way in Minneapolis. This is from 1908. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've ever held anything from 1908. Oh, well, this is a photocopy. Oh, okay, photocopy. (laughs) (laughs) Incubator baby is an heir. Foster mother leaves $15,000. Yeah, let's just take a minute to soak that in. Yeah, $15,000. In that, that is now the early 1900s at this point. This is insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a lot of money. Yeah. 
You could pay off all your student loans with that. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> okay, foster mother leaves $15,000 to Trans-Mississippi WAIF. Josephine Nauber, one of the incubator children at the recent Trans-Mississippi Exposition, yesterday fell heir to $15,000 left by her adopted parents, Mrs. Amanda A. Patrick. So this was a pretty publicized court case where a woman by the name of Amanda Patrick left almost two-thirds of her inheritance to this infant from the Incubator Fair exhibit. Here is another article okay. uh, in 1910. This is now the Omaha Bee reporting. This is two years later. At the time of the exposition, Mrs. Patrick saw the Incubator baby and was gripped by strange affection for the elf. Right, when so they call her an elf. She was a waif, now she's an elf. Now she's an elf. That's the story that they're selling in here. This random woman, stranger, goes to the fair, falls in love with the tiny elf in the glass box, oh. and then leaves her her inheritance. Okay, I have to resettle myself and to figure out. So Josephine was the baby. Yes. And Mrs. Patrick left the money to Josephine. Yes, yes, this is good. We all need to resettle ourselves. This gets so complicated. Okay. But yeah, baby Joe. Yes. Josephine Nauber. Amanda Patrick leaves her the money. Interesting. Was she adopted by Mrs. Patrick? Well, that's certainly what was reported. I mean, they even say is left the money by her adopted mother. But when I dug deeper into the newspaper archives, I found this. This gets juicy. Oh, wow. This is 1906. So it's reported here in this paper that you're looking at that she has filed for divorce on the grounds of, can you read what it says there? Amanda K. Nauber has secured a decree of divorce on the charge of abandonment and, and non-support. Yeah. Interesting plot twist. Right? <laughs> yeah, total plot twist. So she, at the time of the fair, which was in 1898, uh-huh. Miss Patrick was not Miss Patrick. She was Miss Nauber. She oh. divorces Mr. Nauber in 1906. And then two years later is when she passes away and she's left all of her money to the little incubator baby Nauber. And by this time, according to the paper, baby Joe Nauber is also living with the deceased Miss Patrick's family. So supposedly there's no connection. But they do share a last name. I doubt it. <laughs> there has to be something. <laughs> Right? So this is, it all gets very interesting. Here is the article where we see that the incubator baby heiress is living with the family. And this one says, child hatched, quote unquote, child hatched at the Mississippi Exposition inherits $15,000. <laughs> and it says that she is living with Miss Patrick's parents. Which would be her grandparents? Going on our assumption here that Amanda Nauber was actually her birth mother. Okay. Yes, these, these would be her grandparents. But we have to say, you know, for the record, we don't actually know. Okay. It could be that later she gave the name of Nauber to this child, and that's why she's referred to as Nauber. That seems weird, though, if she didn't adopt her until after the fair when she was already known as Patrick. So we, we really can't say one way or the other. We can't be certain. But regardless... You can imagine that Mr. Patrick is not so happy about this. He's only getting a handful of jewelry, some household items. Like, this sucker gets the vacuum <laughs> and a friendship bracelet. So he's suing for what he feels he is entitled to, which is, according to the law, he should get at least 50% of her estate because he was her legal husband. But here's the issue. 
As I kept reading and finding more coverage on this, it becomes clear that Miss Patrick's family members, they don't think that they were legally married. Not legally? And guess why? Why? Because they were married in Iowa. Ah, Iowa. <laughs> what could be the problem with Iowa, right? There's it's still part of the Midwest. We we like it. Yeah, I have no idea what marriage laws were like at this point in time. So I actually found the marriage records, and it turns out that before they got married in Council Bluffs, Iowa, they tried it over here in Omaha, but they were denied because of a recent divorce. Who's divorce. So there was another law at the time that says in Nebraska, you must wait six months. Six months had to pass before remarrying after a divorce. And Mr. Patrick did not wait long enough before he tried to marry Mrs. Patrick. So they were denied here. Then they hightail it over the river to Iowa, get married there. Fast forward nine months, she's dead and her family calls foul play. Hmm. And then by 1910, we get this article, and we see that the jury is just asked to determine whether or not they're married. It's, so it's here. They, in the oh court case, they don't ask the jury, decide if, if the incubator baby should get the money. They just say, decide if this man was married to her or not. All right. And then here, this is December of 1910. Here's the jury's decision. Okay. Patrick succeeds in fight on girl for wife's money. Yeah. Aw. So he got yeah. half? Yeah. Okay. And then the other 50% was split between her and the other family. And there's some more convoluted coverage of it after the fact. But basically, she doesn't end up with very much. I mean, she's very young at this point. She couldn't speak for herself very well. She is living with... Uh, Miss Amanda Patrick's family, though, at this time. And so even if she was not adopted by Miss Patrick, even if Miss Patrick is her, her biological mother, then she's definitely, in the end, at least adopted by grandparents. Right. She's taken in by them, absolutely. When we talk about who were these infants, why were they coming there, a lot of times premature infants, or even if they weren't premature, could have been born out of wedlock, and that was a reason why infants were brought to the incubators and they may even have been tried to pass them off as premature infants even if they weren't because they didn't want it to look like the child was conceived out of wedlock so they would try to convince martin cooney that you know maybe this child it, um, it was just premature it's not that we had sex before we were married it's just a premature infant so that's one of the reasons why infants were brought there Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, the social times. Mm -hmm. Or if it wasn't, um, I mean, then we we have to look at the reason why she divorced her husband, right? She divorces him on the grounds of non-support. So if you're left alone to care for a premature infant, you might decide that it is worth it to try your very best and take her to this fair. Perhaps leave her there. She didn't think that she would survive. Later down the line, she does, but by this point... She isn't connected to the child anymore. She has a different last name. Yeah. But she does have a way to still support her through the rest of her life by leaving her this money. So what happened to Josephine? Well, I was able to track down some of her family members, her descendants. And, well, this is the first that they had heard of it. And this is her granddaughter speaking to me over the phone from Hawaii, where their family is settled. Hi. (laughs) Aloha. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you found them in Hawaii? 
So it turns out her they moved to Chicago. Then from Chicago, she has several children. One of her children was in the Navy. He then becomes part of the Rotary Club. He had recently passed away, so there was an obituary that we found. And through that, we were able to contact his daughter. Wow. So this is Debbie. This is Debbie Dibler. And I should mention that we've done enough research and cross-checking to be 99.9% sure that we have the right family here. But the thing is that it was a very secretive endeavor. Many of these families just, they never shared it with their the children. Of course, baby Joe had to know what was going on because of the court case. But the fact is that most often this was very secretive. They didn't talk about it. If you're taking your baby to the freak show to be put in a glass box, you're not going to spread it around. So Debbie, she had no idea. That's interesting because Debbie was adopted. Oh, wow. And they didn't tell her. What? Yeah. She didn't find out until much later on in life. It was kept a secret from her and her family the whole time. So that's interesting to think about who her grandmother was in her grandmother's life. And now Debbie is adopted from Germany, by the way. So here's Debbie. Because they didn't even, my family didn't even tell me. And here's the funny thing. They didn't even tell their family. Because I've asked my cousin, they're like, I don't know, your parents were in Europe long enough to have a herd of kids. So you got to have a football team the time they came back. <laughs> <laughs> so they kept it a total secret. I mean, it didn't matter. She's the when we talked later, she said, you know, it didn't matter. It was, it, mom is the one who was there. It didn't matter if she was biologically related or not. Right. And so I, I told her some more about the exhibit, and that was also a surprise. I told her that it was part of the carnival section. So they have them in this like carnival setting, a real baby. <laughs> that just blows my mind when you think about it. And they're on display like they're part of the freak show or something. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about this for a while, but when you hear somebody's family member talking about it happening to somebody they're related to, it just brings a different meaning to the story. So many of the families went through the same experience when they heard for the first time that this is where their family member came from because so many of them just kept it a secret their whole lives. One thing I did find, though, was that of the many babies that I did meet, a lot of them didn't know much about the circumstances. In particular, when parents were sending their newborn babies to a sideshow, they had very mixed feelings about it, and they often really didn't share much information about it with their children later on. I've never heard that story about my grandmother being in an incubator. All kinds of people brought their children to the sideshow because in New York, the hospitals were literally saying to patients, if you want your child to survive, you have to take it to Coney Island, which is just astonishing to me. The parents knew what was going on, of course. They brought them there, but many times they didn't even tell their children until much later in life. But one thing that Debbie was sure of is that we had the right baby Joe. It's, it's definitely got to be my Josephine. I do know that she was quite a strong woman, and I know she was hardworking, that's for sure. My mother always told me she was beautiful and very strong. Her grandmother was no weakling. And she had to have been at least 5'8 in stature because when she stood next to my father, they were pretty much eye to eye. I know she was really kind and loving the way she raised my father. I do know that. They, they had a real special relationship. They were very, very close. It made my dad the person he is today, or, or today the person he was. I think he reflected his mother a lot. And I know that um, she was very giving 
uh, my grandfather used to send men off his train during the Depression, these homeless men, to my grandmother. They'd knock on the back door and they would say, Francis sent me. And she'd wash their clothes and feed them. And my dad said he'd come home and there'd be some strange man at the kitchen table and she'd be feeding him. Wow. I just love, uh, I love baby Joe. I love her story. And she sounds like she was a great mother and raised a, an amazing young man. And this is what he was trying to do all along, right? Prove that they could be strong and create this propaganda for preemies and do the showmanship thing. Right. So he was a doctor that was a good advertiser for himself and for medicine. And you wouldn't think maybe that that a doctor would have particularly great social skills. I mean, I didn't mean that as much as a burn as it sounded like. <laughs> well, I think, uh, no, that is that is what some people have thought about in the past, you know, of physicians that are just super smart, but maybe aren't really great people people. Which is okay. Like, I don't want my, my cardiac pediatrician to be be my car salesman like those are distinct those are different, different qualities yes yes yeah. for sure yes so are you ready for this amanda there's another twist oh my gosh remember our author don raffle yes so don conducted thorough research on martin cooney for her book and she carefully looked into his medical training records and here's what she found don't tell me the first thing I did was go to the New York Medical Licensing Archive where I discovered there was no record of him. Um, I also found that his story really wobbled. He says things like, um, we have medical doctors come and check on the babies. Like he doesn't ever say, I was a medical doctor. And there's his quote unquote assistant who said, you know, they never saw him actually examine a baby. He didn't do that. He got around the health department by always having a quote unquote assistant who really had a medical license. And then he would have that assistant sign the paperwork. And then also medical schools that he could have gone to, um, there was no record of matriculation there under any of the names that he used. Um, he wasn't there. Are you heartbroken? That does break my heart. And the last piece of it is just his immigration. We see him arriving in New York at the age of 18, and we see him getting his citizenship in Omaha 10 years later. He wasn't in Europe when he said he was in Europe getting his medical training. The whole, the dates don't work out. That it's just, it's overwhelmingly, he, he really can't have been a doctor. I am just, I feel like he was a hero of some sorts, you know, going out on a limb and bringing this incubator to light across the United States. But to impersonate a physician, I mean, that's a felony. If he called himself a physician, or does he just go by doctor? Just made it real. I mean, yeah. That... <laughs> yeah. It makes me wonder if this is why he couldn't have been in the scientific area. Right. Because mm -hmm. he did seem to have some lines of who he would lie to and who he wouldn't. Like, he wouldn't lie on those official papers for the death certificates. He wouldn't lie. So maybe he felt okay lying to the other carnival barkers, but not to the Hall of Science. That's possible. Wow. But I think we have to be careful of discrediting his whole work right. just because he lacks the title. I mean, the truth is, to this day, doctor or not, he's credited with saving between six and 7,000 infant lives. Amazing. You know, I think uh, the families came to him because they had no other options and they wanted care for their infants that he had proven he could give to other infants. So, of course, this is Dr. Anderson Berry again. 
I certainly can't condone the ethics of misrepresenting your profession. And so that's unfortunate. However, he did save them. It's a very complicated situation. Yeah. I totally agree. And I'm just taking all this in still because it is confusing and... Yeah, it's not black and white. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we see this today even, you know, doctor can mean a lot of different things. It can mean PhD, it could be MD, it could be a DO, it, you know, you could have your PhD in neuroscience and you're a doctor. So mm -hmm. it can be confusing. Mm -hmm. And so deep down, I hope that's what it was, was confusing in that he didn't call himself a doctor as a physician, but maybe as a doctor of other sorts. But I think that's... I think you're giving him a lot. But actually here, Don Raffle had something similar to say. And he was a savior to these tiny babies. It was interesting to me that there were a lot of doctors in his family. I think somewhere in his psyche, he may have really had this idea of being a healer. Um, it may well have been that in the beginning, he got into it as kind of an interesting way of making money. I don't know his original motivation, but I also think, you know, once you start to care for anyone or anything, you begin to have feelings and become attached. I'm digesting for a second. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that he was a hero, regardless of, you know, how he portrayed himself. He did save a lot of babies. He also, no doubt about it, enjoyed getting rich. He made a lot of money. Um, I don't think he saw any conflict between saving these babies and his own self-interest. Ultimately, he died broke, which was really sad. He lost everything at the New York World's Fair. Um, but then again, you know, while he was losing all his money at that fair, he didn't quit. You know, he saw that there were these children that he could save, and if he didn't, nobody else was going to. I'm reminding myself that at this time period, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that there wasn't maybe a role for somebody who was very um, bright and had a passion and, may, and didn't have a medical license, but had a way they wanted to intervene with patients. And, you know, today there's tons of jobs in research mm, and, mm -hmm. um, and even engineering and engineering and mm -hmm. all kinds of things that people have the opportunity to help and to develop tools, but not be a physician. Right. It is a felony. That's true. <laughs> but he didn't say he was a doctor on his immigration papers. Mm. He says he's he handles medical instruments. Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad things are more regulated now. <laughs> it just kind of, it yeah. makes it less, you know, mm -hmm. blurry. It's true. Those letters help us determine, like, who is fake and who is real. And so when I asked Don, what is the difference then between what Cooney was doing and all these other people out there selling snake oil? And this is what she said. There were a lot of medicine shows, and they were basically selling snake oil. Right, right. And what was so interesting about Cooney was that he was a fake doctor, but the care he was giving was not only real, but better than anything available in American hospitals at that time. He was decades ahead of the American medical establishment. He was using a European protocol. You know, the difference is that he was the real thing, and... You know, sometimes innovation comes from outside the academy. So with or without the letters after his name, he got the job done. And this brings us back to our conversation with Debbie, Baby Joe's granddaughter. Because as we now know, Debbie 
was adopted. So she and I talked at length about how her adopted parents are absolutely her mother and father, even though they don't technically have the title of biological mother, biological father. What matters is that they were the ones who were there. They filled the role. You know, the family that, that adopted me to me is my family. That's all I know. It's, it's you know, I mean, I've been with these with this family since I was two weeks old. So, and to think that my grandmother, who I've never known, had this life. It also makes me think, well, no wonder she was such a strong woman and, and, and so loving. Because if this woman, Amanda, whether it be her real mother or foster mother, must have shown her a lot of love in a, a loving environment. It's just another piece of that puzzle. Now, if I find my birth mother, it just put the icing on the cake, you know. Wow. So at some point, it doesn't matter what your title is. If you do the job, you do the job. But make no mistake about it. I mean, this was a show, right? He was known for pulling stunts like sliding the mother's wedding band over the infant's fragile, tiny arm to show how tiny the babe was. It sounds like there was a lot of this type of uh, marketing and behavior going on around that time period. We have to remember Cooney is entering the scene when most people don't regularly go to a doctor. You know, this kind of marketing just made sense to market towards the the consumer or be that the parents. And I think at this time period, too, there's a lot of people didn't have a lot of faith in physicians mm, because mm-hmm. there were so many treatments and things that weren't working. Right. Absolutely. You know, but eventually there is a shift and the medical community begins to be more receptive. And I think what really transformed American neonatology was the friendship between Martin Cooney, who was a showman, uh, and Dr. Julius Hess in Chicago, who was the first really established American doctor to publicly endorse what Martin Cooney was doing within an institutional setting. So Julius Hess was somebody who had all the credentials and could speak the language of doctors and could publish in peer-reviewed journals. Martin Cooney was the publicity machine that he needed, and really their show at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933 and 34 was really something that turned the tide because together the two of them had the whole package. I like that combination much better. I like this better. You like okay, all right, yeah. right, she's happy again. But it, it's true. Again, he covers he covers all the bases. He realizes at some point that he really can't do this alone and that he needs somebody who's in that circle. So he teams up with Hess. And that's when things are really able to take off. It begins to be more accepted by the medical community. Here's Dr. Anderson Berry again talking about when hospitals do finally accept it. By the 1940s and 50s, hospitals started to realize that those were technologies that they could afford. And so we started to see that care move into hospitals instead of sideshows. Yeah, so not until the 40s, though. Yeah, just thinking about medicine at the time, it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, he did not have the MD. He did not have the letters after his name. But in the case of Martin Cooney, not as a great doctor, but as Martin Cooney as the precursor for the popular science boom of the podcast generation that we are, whether or not he was a doctor is almost irrelevant. Like Dr. Anderson Berry said, we don't want to endorse a trend of lying about your qualifications, but in terms of foreshadowing our podcast-informed and curious generation of today, it doesn't really matter that he wasn't a doctor. I think it does matter. Oh, I okay. I wouldn't say that. Okay. Because 
I don't know. It's just the ethics of it. It's mm. hard. It's very difficult for me to say. We can't say it doesn't matter. I don't think we can say that. It's an important ethical discussion, but uh, but it doesn't discredit what he did for the babies. Right. And for educating the public. Yeah. 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 It's like, do the ends justify the means? Almost. <laughs> 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 listeners tell us do they do they? Well, but I think that's also maybe I don't know if anyone would agree but as a physician like you know we take an oath as a physician so maybe this just hits home a little mm-hmm. bit harder mm-hmm. to me and my core than it might be to somebody who's not a physician I don't know no absolutely I I, I get what you're saying and uh, I think it's great that we found out that he was a liar after he was dead But everything else still lives on, right? The education that he passed on to parents, also this idea that you could use fairs and sideshows to educate. He's one of these people who starts to bring the idea that you can entertain and educate at the same time. So this making science popularized and understandable without the credentials, he still fits that bill, right? Okay. And like Debbie said, what matters most is that he's the one who is there. She's still my mother. She's the one that was with me 24-7, you know, for, you know, since I was two weeks old. So, you know, um, mm-hmm. even though she didn't birth me, she's still my mother. And I think that for just getting it out there, he had all the qualifications that he needed for that portion, for the propaganda, for the educational purposes. For saving lives. For saving lives. Yeah. Yeah. So, Martin Cooney. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Cooney. Oh, you call oh, doctor. I don't know why. Ooh. I maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Emily, for having me out. And thanks for helping me meet my Midwest quota. <laughs> You've been listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America a production of Omaha Public Radio. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Amanda Jepson, as well as Jean Johnson and the Durham Museum, author Don Raffle, Dr. Alexander Rudelach, and Dr. Laura Heinemann from Creighton University's Department of Medical Anthropology, and Debbie Deibler. And a big thank you to the Omaha Public Library for all of the newspapers and other archival resources we dug through for this episode, as well as the photographs of the 1898 incubators that we have posted on this episode's page. We would also like to thank Sweet Magnolia's Bake Shop for their mouth-watering treats that fueled our editing process. This episode of Made in the Middle was produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Todd Hatton, and Joshua LeBur. The theme music, Castle on the Cumberland, was written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn. You can find us at KIOS.org, on Facebook, and on Twitter at KIOS Omaha. If you like what you hear, do leave a rating and, of course, subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes of Made in the Middle. Thanks for listening.